Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back. I am Diana Kander, grateful that you've decided to spend part of your day with me. I have a confession to make today. I am a nerd. And being a nerd means that even when you have free time, there is a topic that you're so passionate about that's all you want to read about and learn about and talk about. And as Jason Kander can attest whenever he asks me about what I'm thinking about, I am a nerd when it comes to innovation and team culture. And today you get to hear me nerd out with somebody that I consider to be a hero when it comes to psychological safety in the workplace. The reason that you need to know and understand psychological safety is that study after study has demonstrated that it is the highest predictor of team performance. Google conducted this two-year study in which they analyzed over 150 different factors of what created successful teams, and they found psychological safety to be the number one predictor of success. A Gallup study found that psychological safety led to 27% reduction in turnover, 40% reduction in safety incidents, and 12% increase in productivity. And here's a kicker. We need psychological safety today more than ever. The Project Management Institute reported that project success is at its lowest in years. In their report, they analyzed a number of projects over the years, and they found that fewer major projects are being completed on time and on budget today than in previous years. And when they interviewed teams about the reasons for this decrease, they heard a common theme, that projects fail because teams don't know how to communicate, organize, and prioritize. Okay, I'm going to save you all the research and just share that Investing in psychological safety is one of the most important things that you can do to increase performance on your team and in your organization. And today I get to talk about this amazing topic with the woman who coined the term and is responsible for groundbreaking research on this topic. I know you have already guessed who it is. Amy Edmondson is a professor at Harvard Business School. She studies teaming, psychological safety and leadership. And she's been recognized by the biannual Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers. Just this month, she was recognized as the winner of the Thinkers 50 2019 Breakthrough Idea Award for her book, The Fearless Organization, which we're discussing on the show today. And before her academic career, she was the director of research at Picos River Learning Centers, where she worked on transformational change in large organizations. Before we get to the interview... I ask that you take a second to rate and review the show wherever you listen to it. It is a small ask with huge implications because this helps me bring you more nerdy content like this interview with Amy Edmondson. Amy, I started my consulting by trying to bring entrepreneurial practices inside big companies. And the first place I showed up, I was teaching them all these skill sets for experimentation. And I found that people were excited about them, but nobody was doing anything. And as I dug in deeper, I found that these people were afraid 
of so many things I made a list. I made a list of 17 different things that people were afraid of at work that prevented them from trying new things or taking on risks. And and they were afraid of of like, you know, taking a risk and looking bad, but they were also afraid of taking a risk and looking good and showing up their coworkers. Right, right. Did you say 17? 17. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, it's true. It's so funny. I mean, we're such complex creatures in a way, um, and we so get in the way of learning and 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 learning behaviors that are that that are so needed to to make progress. But I would love to see your list. <laughs> Can you explain the biggest ones? Well, to me, I mean, I I um, I have long said. We have this, you know, we have a fear, especially in the workplace, of looking ignorant, intrusive, incompetent, and negative. And ignorant is, of course, that that fear that leads us to not ask questions, you know, because there's a uh, almost a taken for granted belief that I'm supposed to know everything, and it would make me look bad if I ask a question. When, of course, in reality. When you ask a question, you look engaged and curious and thoughtful. But so I- ignorance is is um, is one incompetence. I don't want to admit I have any weaknesses or or have made any mistakes or had any failures because of that that fear of of appearing incompetent and intrusive. I think is related to one that you just said, which is you know I don't I don't, I don't want to impose. I don't want to impose on your space on your on your freedom uh, to to think as you think or to do things the way you want to do. And of course, negative speaks for itself. I I, I don't want to be a a downer. So these kinds of behaviors are meant to protect ourselves, right? Like we in Maslow's hierarchy uh, of pyramid at work, you know, the safe, the bottom rung is safety. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to control for, right? Right. I mean, it's a, it's a self-protective instinct. I mean, I, I would say that most of this sort of holding back is non-conscious or, you know, not, not, not explicitly conscious. It's a, it's a kind of an instinct. Um, but I'm not going to put, I'm not going to stick my neck out for you to chop it off. That's an instinct. And of course that's a gross metaphor, but, but it's, it's, it's often the way we feel in social systems and particularly in, in work place social systems. One of the more powerful things that I read in your book was the the dichotomy of how I think about protecting myself versus helping the company. Because if I speak up or I take a risk, I, I'm doing something that's not going to occur, you know, to benefit anybody for a while. And it's going to benefit the customer or the organization in a while. Or I can protect myself, and that feels good now. And the power of that difference, 100%. right? One hundred percent of the time, it's going to work. So uh, I, I can see how that would lead us to, you know, protect ourselves a lot more than take a risk on behalf of our customers or our organization. Can you just briefly share with me the business case for trying to increase psychological safety at work? Sure. So at, at, at a very high level of abstraction, when we have psychological safety, we engage more in learning behaviors. You know, we're more willing to share ideas, to ask questions, uh, to push back and critique. Um, so we're, 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 we're grappling with the substance of the work in thoughtful ways uh, that I find convenient to categorize as learning behavior. 
And when we engage in learning behavior in a, you know, complex, fast changing world, our performance is better. So psychological safety enables the learning, which enables the performance. I think you can't have innovation without learning. And more and more workplaces have to be innovative right now. Indeed. In fact, you know, innovation is the is the holy grail. Innovation is what every organization, whether product, service, or even government agency, we widely recognize the need to innovate, to stay relevant. You know, it's not innovate necessarily. I mean, we want to innovate also to get ahead and 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 come out with the next great improvement or great idea that will customers will flock to. But it's it's um, nowadays I think we often recognize a need to innovate just to just to stay relevant. Well, when I go into organizations and I tell them that there's this hot new thing called psychological safety and we need people <laughs> in meetings to admit mistakes and be vulnerable. The number one thing that I get because of the industries, I guess, that I'm in is that people say, well, you know, failure is not an option in this organization. There's a lot at stake, whether it's people's lives or we deal in very highly scrutinized industries. So I would love to hear your answer to that. I'm going to say this and it's going to be a little bit flippant, but if failure is not an option, then you better embrace failure. Now, I know that sounds contradictory, um, but hear me out. So if big failure or stupid failure is not an option, the only way to achieve that is by embracing every process irregularity, mistake, and small failure along the way. Because if we cannot be vigilant in catching and correcting the small failures, then we are not going to be able to prevent the big failures. So the risk of the phrase failure is not an option is that it serves to silence speaking up about the small failures and mistakes that might be happening because we, we hear the message loud and clear. Failure is not an option. Okay. I don't want to have made one. When in reality, we need to do a much better job. Leaders need to do a much better job of distinguishing between um, small failures and large failures, preventable failures and things that come out of the blue or are the result of a smart hypothesis-driven experiment that nonetheless failed to get the result we really wanted. And if we don't make those kinds of distinctions among the different kinds of failure, then I think we're doomed to experience the bigger and more important kinds of failure. I was reading Daniel Coyle's Culture Code, and there was this paragraph that stuck out at me more than any other in the book. And that is what he said psychologists call status management meetings in which participants are more concerned where they fit into the larger picture than problem solving. And so their interactions mm -hmm. appear smooth, but the underlying behavior is inefficient. Everybody's hesitating and they're all in competition with one another. And so instead of focusing on like getting the job done, what they're doing is navigating their uncertainty about one another. And they spend so much of their time managing status that they fail to grasp the essence of what it is that they're trying to do as a team. How do we transition? I love from that book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How do we transition from these status management meetings to a psychologically safe meeting where we're, we're all being vulnerable mm -hmm. and trying to problem solve? 
I love that description. It's, it's so apt. I mean, it's, it's both, um, uh, accurate and, and a little bit humorous. You know, we human beings are funny creatures that we could, we're at work, you know, we're supposed to be, we work for important companies that are doing important things in the world. And yet we fall into sometimes only partly consciously these little, games of of trying to you know manage and navigate our status in the social system and i like to think of that as you've described it so well already but it's 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 not an overstatement to say that means i'm trying to do two jobs at once i'm trying to do my real job and i'm trying to do the job of looking good and staying on top of this little hierarchy and you clearly can't do two jobs at once as well as you could do just one job. And so how do you manage it? To me, the most important thing that the project leader or team leader or, or anyone, frankly, in, that, in, the, um, in the setting can do is first and foremost, emphasize and point to the importance of what we're working on, you know, the, the purpose question, the why it matters question, because if you can make, you know, help remind us of why we should care effectively enough, some of that game playing just recedes naturally, because I really care. I really want to do this. Um, and then, and then the other aspect is to point to and emphasize the uncertainty and the challenge of what we are working on and facing, because that essentially sets the rationale for why voice and interpersonal risk-taking are needed. In other words, it would be absolutely sane and rational to hold back and focus more on the status game if there's no reason not to do that because that's just almost automatic. But if I have a good reason to take interpersonal risks, to offer crazy ideas, to ask questions, um, then, then I'll do it. So it, it takes effort. It takes, it takes this kind of explicit reminding, you know, let's get us back in the same mindset so that we can do this well. I had this incredible conversation on the show with Annie Duke. I don't know if you're familiar with her book on poker strategy for decision making. And she gave this great example where if you and I and our team were in a safari and I ask you to go fight a lion, you would say, you know, that's okay. I think I'll sit this one out and I'll let somebody else go. Mm -hmm. But if I said Mm -hmm. the safety of our team depends on you going out to fight the lion, you're doing this to protect everybody else, then you're much more likely to go do it. And that that's the kind of request that you're asking of your team. Exactly. No, it's because that's, that's beautiful because really what you're saying, and it's true, is this is sort of our, our, our primitive brains are telling us this is lion fighting. I mean, because what could be scary about opening your mouth and letting words come out in a meeting, right? It's not lion fighting, but our primitive brains almost treat it as if it is. So that's a beautiful example that we would even do something as as brave as lion fighting, if we really believe this is a way to help the team, you know, this is a way to do something that really matters with my life, which I think we all long to do. Uh, so that that's exactly right. And that's why the purpose part is so important. And then the, 
you know, the, the framing, the work is kind of saying it's related to the lion as well, because it's kind of reminding people, you know, what we're doing here is a little bit like lion fighting. I mean, it's, we're going to go for it, but there's no guarantee that the results will be what we want. So, hey, all ideas are welcome. All critiques are welcome because the path forward isn't 100% worked out yet. We were recording this in the morning and we thought we'd give you an insight into what we sound like in the mornings talking about whoop. Because we partied hard last night with our dinner party. Yeah, that's about as hard as Crazy times now. at the yeah. Kander household. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so let's compare our whoop scores. Before we do, just to remind people who haven't listened to our whoop ads for several weeks, it is the ultimate fitness tracker. It tracks three things, how much strain you put on your body through your cardiovascular system, how much recovery you get throughout the day, and how much rest you're getting at night, how much sleep you're getting at night. Mm-hmm. So how, how are you doing this? this? In the morning, it tells you your score and how you're operating throughout the day. So my recovery score this morning is 29%. Aww. Yeah. That means you're going to need a lot of hugs. That Yes, it says that right here. And it I, does not. I, I would want to compare. Uh, mine is a 57 today. I, um, I'm feeling really good. I think people can hear the difference. <laughs> That's my guess. I think uh, I have to do the extra work. Whatever yeah. the extra work is. Yeah. Taking it, out the dog, feeding the dog, getting the paper. I mean, yeah, I totally agree with this. This is what we do every morning. We decide who does what based on our whoop recovery scores. And one of my favorite things about the whoop that we've been doing the ads long enough that now we have actual friends who heard about it from us, got the whoop, and can confirm that because they use it, they have improved sleep, drink less alcohol, have fewer injuries, and just feel better about knowing what's going on with their body. Yeah. It's fun when we're like out in the world and we're talking to one of our friends and then we look on their wrist and we're like, Hey, and they're like, yeah, I went, I went ahead and got it. And they always think it's awesome. Oh yeah. They're like, you were right. So what provided an offer for our listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code Diana, you just go to whoop.com. That's W H O O P.com and use the code Diana at checkout to save 15% and optimize the way you live. I have been on the road a lot over the last couple of weeks, and I'm so glad that every time I get to take my balanced superfood shots with me in my suitcase, because I know that no matter the airport I'm in, no matter what I get to eat, I'm still going to get half my fruits and vegetables for the day with just one shot. I have not been traveling lately. Diana has been traveling a lot lately, which is why I have not been eating enough vegetables because <laughs> uh, when she's home, she cooks. And also I just eat better when she's around. Uh, so I too, while she's traveling, need the superfood shots in the fridge, which is awesome. We're sitting uh, in our podcast recording studio slash office, and it's filled to the brim with superfood shots that I purchased so that I can hand them out as thank you gifts to people who hire me for uh, speeches and whatnot, because I I think this product is so amazing. I I also want to emphasize, like, I think people figure, well, when you do ads for a product, you just get a ton of free stuff. Like, obviously you get samples, but no, Diana purchased a huge case of this stuff. I think we're almost paying them more money than... Yeah, I think it may be a wash. I'm not sure. (laughs) So you get half your daily fruits and vegetables in one convenient shot. There's three different flavors for you to choose from. The foundation blend has 15 different superfoods in it. There's the turmeric blend, which is really good if you're working out or just working. It's a really good recovery snack. And then there's the immunity blend, which has... 
1,000% of your daily vitamin C from edelberry, orange, and cherry. And each one has half your daily fruits and vegetables. I like them from the very beginning. And I'm, you have all these great names for them. I just refer to them as purple, green, and orange. <laughs> Those are the other yeah. ways to, yeah, to purple, refer to them. Orange. Absolutely. You just go to superfoodshot.co and use the code Diana at checkout for 30% off. So that's superfoodshot.co and use the code Diana at checkout for 30% off. I oftentimes compare talking about psychological safety, like trying to get people to adopt like an all vegan diet, right? So there's all kinds of data that would show you this is really good for you and increasing your life. And people will be like, okay, I'll try it. And then they try it and they're like, this is uncomfortable. I think I'll go back to the way that it, it's been, you know? So yeah. in, in your work now, let's talk about your work hands-on with teams. What is it that you do differently? Like, are there tools and tactics that maybe aren't in the book, some secret stuff that you use to get teams <laughs> to adopt this stuff? No, I mean, there's no secret tools that aren't in the book. I think the the basic framework that's in chapter seven in the book is um, descriptive of how I go about this. Um, and maybe and which is, you know, framing the work kind of being being clear about both the purpose and the uncertainty and interdependence so that that, you know, you're, you're in a sense, just setting that foundation for why for why everybody why everybody's input matters. Um, and then the, um, here's where if you have more time, we can do better, which is in the, in the art of actually proactively inviting input. Um, the most important skill is the art of asking a good question. And that's something that we can practice and, you know, people can get better at. And it's funny, you know, they say, okay, I'm going to ask a good question. And then they ask a yes, no question or a leading question. And it's, it, there's laughter because it's, you know, you, you think you're about to do it right, but then you're, you know, your group kind of lets you know you didn't and you realize you didn't, but that's okay. You know, this is a safe space to, to learn. Um, and then, and then probably even more challenging to master is the art of the productive response. And the productive response is a combination of appreciative and forward-looking and our instincts as human beings are to kind of, uh, you know, uh, blame and and um, get upset when, when especially for bad news, and um, to be backward looking, like, okay, how the hell did that happen, right? Rather than how can we help? And so the, these are skills that can be practiced and trained, and especially in a in the sort of a safe environment of a of an engagement like this, as I'm as I'm sure um, you know. The an overarching approach that I like to use is to be work focused. Right? So, uh, although I'm I'm a fan of and have participated in many offsites over the years, many different uh, companies, um, I kind of like on sites, and I don't really mean geography. I don't really mean the facility. We can be anywhere, but when we get together to do the work on our teaming and and on creating a learning climate climate of psychological safety um, we could do that just doing those things or we could do those things in the context of and during the process of doing our work i think that's a really powerful model right? because if people feel that they're making progress on their core work together, 
it's both more palatable to devote the time to it, um, and it's actually a better playing field for, for practicing. So do you observe their team interactions and then give them feedback like that wasn't psychologically safe? This is what you could do better. Well, I don't think I'd ever quite say that wasn't psychologically safe, but here's what. So, yes, I do sometimes observe. Um, and and um, here's what here's what I would often do. If I see someone, if, if I, I hear or see someone do or say something that could inadvertently have made it less safe for, for others to speak, especially when, you know, when that I, I will often, you know, not just say so. I'm not going to. Um, but I'll pause and say, okay, let me pause. And then maybe, you know, Diana, what reactions do you have? Um, and it, to that, and it's, you know, people, people are, human beings are very good at understanding impact and not so good at diagnosing intention. Right. And so I'm always going to, again and again, this is a frame, but the frame should be benefit of the doubt, you know, assume good intentions. When, when we don't have the impact we want in a, in a work or team setting, it's not generally due to lack of desire to have a good impact is usually deserved. It's usually incompetence. It's, you know, we've, we've said something in a way that we were unaware of the edge it might have. So I could point it out, but it's even more powerful when you kind of, um, I just use inquiry to allow others to say to say truly what the impact is. That's very meta. You're using your own stuff to implement yeah, your own it's stuff. Kind of meta. <laughs> I have an exercise I would like to pitch you, Amy, and get okay, your feedback on it. I'd love to. Yeah, good. So good. I, I do these things called team process improvement meetings or huddles, and it happens every week, and it takes 15 minutes. And the team gets together and we do a ground setting. Like we're doing this because we all love each other, respect each other, but sometimes processes break down or we have unarticulated processes that are impacting our work. So throughout the week, if anybody had any kind of feelings, feelings of confusion, frustration, anger, <laughs> uh, elation, whatever that good or bad, please articulate what happened, the process that created that. And it could be something silly like, you keep sending me emails with PDFs with no explanation or <laughs> I was out right. of town and somebody scheduled me for a presentation the day after I got back and nobody told me about it or asked if I could do it, mm -hmm. things like that. And so mm -hmm. uh, the goal is to build up psychological safety to have the big conversations by, you know, helping teams have these small conversations where they feel safe, even talking about that stuff. That's excellent. I love that. Here's what I like about it. It's a, it's, it's like a muscle building. Um, and you have to start, you don't, you know, you don't lift 200 pounds, you lift five pounds and it's to build those muscles. So you're saying, I mean, if we, if we're clear about that's a framing statement, processes break down, or as you said, there are unarticulated processes that, um, or exist that we aren't haven't even really consciously developed, but they affect things. Um, and to use, it's also a really good way to um, build a skill, which is if we use feelings as triggers rather than feelings as facts, which by the way, people do, um, we can build a skill, a self-awareness skill of just noticing, okay, I noticed I felt angry or I noticed I felt sad or I noticed I felt joy. Um, 
what led up to it and getting more, more that's self-awareness and getting more self-aware is a really good thing for anyone who wants to be a good colleague or team member. Well, I like you phrasing that thing that you like about my exercise. I never even thought about that, but that's great. Well, what, what, what's your theory of the You have to start small to build a habit so that if you can't, you know, I I want people to end projects that are ineffective, but if you can't Mm. have a conversation to end a meeting, like we have a recurring meeting that we should stop. If you can't have that conversation, you'll never have the conversation about the project that you need to stop. Really calling the project. Yeah. So I really want to start small and help people build up those muscles and feel successful at it. As opposed, I'm always Mm. nervous about bringing something big in. And then it's like, if you started with a 200 pound weight and then you, you hurt yourself and you were like that. Yeah, exactly. You know, not going to do that again. Yeah. (laughs) So that's it. That's the goal is to start small and build it up over time. And you build the relationship each time, you know, each week, it's a consistent thing that we do. And there, I'm, I'm imagining it doesn't take too long either. Well, 15 minutes, you know, but to, you know, they, yeah. they start out real quiet. Yeah. I facilitate a lot of these sessions yeah. with lots of teams and they start out, people aren't really sharing, but they, they start warming up to stuff. And the goal is that they can then throughout the week, say something, which they haven't been saying. Right. It's these, um, these small habits that then start to become shared and bigger habits are, are I think that's a powerful way to think about change because we know you just can't sort of transform overnight our our behaviors, our, our thinking patterns and so forth. This episode brought to you by Diana Kander speaking. Oh, honey, you shouldn't have. I'm quite something. <laughs> now, at the insistence of my speaking manager, Sarah Witten, she said, most people think that this podcast is what you do for a living. So we want to let people know that it's not. What I actually do is give keynote talks to company-wide meetings and associations on the topics of innovation, curiosity, getting your employees to think more like entrepreneurs and have a lot more psychological safety in their everyday work. And Diana has plenty of testimonials that you can go look at on her website and that kind of thing. But a personal testimonial from someone who lives with her is that I see the process of how these speeches work and it's different than most professional speakers. Like when somebody hires her, I then for about a week hear her up here on the phone interviewing people from that company and finding out all sorts of details about them so she can tailor what she says directly to that company, which I don't think most people do. Yeah. I have never given the same speech twice. I try to make something different about it each time and to make it really tailor-made for organizations And it is my favorite thing that I do. Let me shift gears a little bit and ask, what are some common misperceptions of your work? Like, what are people getting just really wrong? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. I um, I mean, I'm I'm not sure when I answer the question, I answer it in terms of what I think people have inferred from a distance. I don't think this is answered the question like they read the whole book and then they came away misguided. I hope not. Um, But one of the things that I think I see on the internet and elsewhere people are getting wrong is uh, they, they say psychological safety. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's about being nice. Great. Fine. Next. You know, so it's, it's not about being nice. And in fact, it's in many ways, anything, but because we often think of nice as I'm not going to say anything unkind, and that's going to be a factor leading me to just hold back in 
in in many uh, instances. Um, it's so it's it's um, sort of ex- recognizing that what we're really talking about here is is candor and clarity and just even courage, the willingness to kind of jump in and really do your job with your colleagues, um, which means taking interpersonal risks. Another big misconception, I think, is that this is um, like it's it's somehow connected with uh, lower standards. Like you can have psychological safety, that's great, but then you can't really hold people, you know, to high standards. Like, you know, failure is not an option. Um, uh, you know, that you're going to be, that this is about accepting mediocrity. Absolutely not, right? In fact, I'd like to say exactly the opposite there too, which is that psychological safety is not about accepting mediocrity. It's actually a necessary condition for achieving excellence in a an uncertain or interdependent or changing environment. You say that in the book that hiring talented people is not enough anymore. You hire talented people based on their resume, their training, you know, their experience, um, their education and all of that. Um, and that's great. I mean, that's, that's kind of each and every one of those talented people has the potential to contribute great things to your organization. Potential is not reality. Um, reality only happens when those talented people that you've just hired feel freed up enough to bring themselves forward. And, and so you, you know, you, you have to hire expertise or talent, and then you have to use or leverage that expertise or talent. And they're not the same thing. Well, I'm very curious, what is next in your journey of psychological safety? Are you working on another book? Is there something that you found out from, from, from sharing all these strategies? Yeah. You know, in fact, related to this conversation, so I'm not yet writing another book. I mean, I, I hope to, but I'm still very much busy with this one. Um, and I guess it, it came out almost almost a year ago, but it's still it's still um, keeping me pretty busy um, in terms of uh, talking about it and helping people um, apply some of these things. I think what I am most eager to do, and I don't know how to do it yet. Um, is to provide better knowledge and tools for actually making the changes that that you and I have been talking about and and so I guess I'm in a journey of collecting um, ideas about how to do that stories cases about how to do that so that I can be more practical that I can offer even more practical skills and tools to people than I have to date. And then how do those, you know, it's how do those skills and tools combine to really address things at an organizational level? It's something I think about all the time. And I'm definitely not yet ready to uh, put a clear uh, guide out there because it's not, it's not created. Well, Amy, I am excited for that next level of your work and uh, would love to share with our listeners, where can they find out more about you and the books that you've written? Please tell us. Great. Well, I think the the best first step is to uh, get a hold of The Fearless Organization. Uh, that is the book that um, we've really been talking about today or those ideas. And 
it's full of stories of, of workplaces around the world where psychological safety was missing and importantly ones where it was present and and so i think the stories are, are will be fun and i do try to give you know some tools and tips as well um you can go to the harvard business school website also and find my faculty page amy edmondson and it, it's um that will give you a link to my bio and and the lists of other articles that I've written that might be of interest. For instance, I wrote one or published one in Harvard Business Review in, in 2011 on failure. And we had this nice conversation here about failure, but that's one that um, people for some reason love that article because I think this topic of failure has lots of uh, depth and resonance that, that still needs to be mined. Well, that's incredible. Uh, we will put all those links in the show notes. And I just want to thank you one more time for coming on the show and giving us, I think, a like not a 101 course on psychological safety, but we dug into some advanced stuff. So a 201, a master's level class in psychological <laughs> safety. Thank you very much, Amy. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. What an amazing and thought-provoking interview with Amy Edmondson. Jesse, what did you think? Wow. She's the very godmother of psychological safety. Yes, she's the muse of everything I want to do in psychological safety. Okay, what were your biggest takeaways? My biggest takeaways were I love that she talked a lot about how for companies to be innovative and to stay ahead and stay relevant, they need to be innovative. And to be innovative, you have to learn. And we're not really creating environments for our people to learn. I think that's so right on. Like so many people think that being innovative means coming up with big, crazy ideas. And really, it's not. It's about coming up with like mediocre ideas and then refining them over time through the process of learning. And we're just putting so much emphasis on the front end and not enough emphasis on like the middle sticky part. And she does such a great job of dispelling that myth. Excellent takeaway, Jesse. Yeah, and she makes it really super simple and easy to understand. And that ties in with my other takeaway, which was how we have this paradox of like failure is not an option. It must be perfect. Well, the only way to not fail in the macro sense is to actually celebrate all of our like and embrace all of our simple, silly failures to actually achieve success in the long run. It's just so deep. So good. <laughs> yes, I think, you know, you you have to be failing in the middle. And if you're not, then I'm very nervous about the overall outcome because I, I just don't know if it's possible without having failures in the middle to, to have an exceptional outcome at the end. Exactly. Well, those are awesome takeaways. Uh, Jesse, I want you and I uh, to go to the Facebook group right now, Professional AF Podcast Insiders, and share the most psychologically safe and the least psychologically safe environments we've ever worked in. I think that sounds like fun. I hope our listeners will join us in that conversation. And I hope that they share this episode with somebody that they care about or bring it back to their team. It's the best way I think they can introduce psychological safety to their team by having a conversation about this. And people don't even have to read the book. They can just listen for a short bit to this episode. And then I hope everybody enjoys the rest of their week and remembers that curiosity is your superpower. It is the secret to making big things happen. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>